0: Uh, and Perhaps. what? Do, wait, where else? Where are we? Uh, uh, tell us something else,
1: Steve. Um, uh, a Falcon thirty-five by twelve point five R one five LT tire is worth about three hundred and forty dollars a piece.
0: Interesting. Hmm.
1: And it's six ply. As opposed wow. to two ply.
0: When. That'll wait, six ply? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) Uh (laughs) That was good. (laughs) good.
1: This is the A T Banter Podcast. A balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything about assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show.
0: Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. LeBanter, le banter. Uh, Hey, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today is Mr. Ryan Flurry.
2: Well, it's not the intro I was going for, but hey, I'm Ryan Flurry.
0: <laughs> and uh, Mr. Steve Barkley.
1: Okay, I'll be Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Been Excellent. waiting he's
0: been waiting two hundred and thirty-nine episodes to do that joke, and I screwed it up for him. So That's right, you blew it. Sorry, buddy. Um Ryan, are you where are you right now? Are you are you in the guitar dungeon?
2: I am. Today is my first day back in the guitar dungeon. We had a few dead ants this morning. Linda looked and no live ones anywhere down here. So I'm hoping after two weeks of at battles, we are done. So we'll see what happens in the next day or so.
0: You've won the war. I hope so. Well, okay. Well, this is good news because yeah, you can, I can kind of tell your sound sounds a lot better. So I can, I was, I suspected you were back in the guitar dungeon.
2: Yeah, it's not as open sounding, you know, being in the guitar dungeon's a little bit more closed in than the living room dining room area. So.
0: All right, well, uh, we're going to scratch that bit off our list of the checking in on the ants for <laughs> the guitar dungeon. So it looks like that's no longer a running bit that we can do. So, Uh-oh, well, the wor- nobody... you, know, you
1: know what the worst part about it is? What? We, we've just lost hundreds of thousands of listeners. That's true. <laughs> that's right. She's like, that's wait, there
0: was no cowbell and the ants are all dead? Uh, okay, we're out. <laughs> that's it. <laughs>
2: We're gonna need a new segment though to replace the ant one.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, maybe can you can you get a wasp infestation perhaps? I think that would that would get some new I Yeah, new no. Listeners. They're
2: bad for dogs.
0: They're bad for everybody. <laughs> I hate those things. Yep. Um So Hey Ryan.
2: What, Rob? Uh what are we uh what are we up to today? Today, we are speaking with Matthew Horspool from the Braillists Foundation, all about Braille. Braille. I love talking
1: about Braille.
2: Braille, 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 Braille.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, you've got a real feel for it. (laughs) Mm, Well done. You're welcome.
0: Boom, boom. This is why we have lasted 239 episodes, folks. Um, that is very cool. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him a little bit later. Uh, hey, I wanted to talk to you guys about something though. Did you, did you guys happen to see this story about the uh, European Space Agency and the fact that they are now allowing astronauts with disabilities to apply? Yeah, I did see that. I, uh, I have to say that, uh, and sort of, sort of catch the listeners up. So basically what the deal is, is the ESA which is Europe's answer to NASA, who we know and love over here in North America, Uh, they have um, announced that they're looking for four to six astronauts to enter into what they're calling the Perastronaut Feasibility Project, which is aimed at including candidates with some physical disabilities into their training program.
2: Can they not just be called astronauts?
0: Well, yeah, I don't know about the, I don't know how I feel about this whole <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of stupid. But, you know, yes. the more I read the article, I actually wasn't really sure about how I felt about this. And I want to see, I want to get your guys' opinion on this because some of this seems a little w- weird to me. So, really, what I have a problem, not a problem, but what I find is a little bit weird is the things that they've listed as, quote, Disabilities, which seems to me this is kind of weird. So, there are they list three things that there they allow for in order to enter into this this program. So, one is if somebody has a lower limb deficiency. So, for example, there they have an amputation or a congenital limb deficiency or difference, as we like to call it here. Not necessarily deficiency; it's kind of a negative connotation. But uh, they have a leg length difference, or they are short, uh, under 130 centimeters, which would be what about uh, under four foot? Is that, is that about right?
1: Yeah. About four, four and a third feet.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and that's it. Those, those are the quote disabilities that they're allowed. So I don't know, like when did short become a disability? I mean, I, I mean, I imagine they're talking about like, say people with like dwarfism or something like that. But is that, do we consider that a disability? Is that?
1: I, I don't know. I, I mean, they don't usually show up at the meetings. Yeah. And what, and
0: a leg, leg length difference. What, what's that about? Like that's, again, that seems like a really strange thing to lump into people with. I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's, I think some of the language and maybe it's, maybe it's a European thing. They're, the way that they talk about disability is a bit different than here, maybe, because I don't know. I wouldn't, I, I mean, limb difference. I guess you could, you could clump into some the disability community, but I don't know about leg length difference or, or like people who are under four foot. Like that seems like a really bizarre. But maybe they just didn't have any other way to talk about that, like the physical differences. They could have said instead of disability... I don't know. It just seems weird. And same with this... The whole Perastronaut project seems a little bit... I don't know. It's just weird.
2: Has NASA ever done anything like this? No.
0: In fact, you know, in the article, they, they actually quote NASA. And they actually went and talked to to the, the folks, some of the folks at NASA. And they really kind of went, well, we didn't... We haven't... We've kind of looked at this, but we've never really considered any sort of a program like this. And that's right. really all they said about it. Um, I mean, listen... I'm thrilled that, uh, you know, there's a space agency out there that's being inclusive and they're trying and all of that. But I don't know, some of the languaging around this just seems weird.
1: Well, you know, you got to give them kudos for, for giving it a go, for starters. You know, nobody else has, has done it. Um, but But honestly, you know, when you think about it, really does does a limb difference make much difference in space i mean it's not like people are tending to do a lot of walking in zero gravity so you know you you wonder how significant that is and how how it would even impact on a on an astronaut's performance oh you
0: mean 100 percent? so would so would a leg length difference i mean uh, i'm guaranteed that that there probably wouldn't be any sort of uh uh effect on that and i mean like like from what I know about the training programs and and the application process itself, you're gonna scrub out nine times out of 10 anyways, unless you're in peak physical condition. And like, I mean, it's not an easy application process to go through. So listen, if you can get through all that and you're, you know, four foot two, or you've got, you know, one leg is longer than the other, kudos to you, like you should be, you should be in the program. Absolutely.
3: There's a throng of people waiting for the release of the next episode of Mosin at Large. I thought we'd talk to some of them and ask them why. Mosin at Large keeps me informed about technology.
1: Yeah, but like it also, like talks about all kinds of things, but from a blindness perspective. The interviews are well done and really interesting.
3: I
0: love that people contribute from all over the world and everyone has a chance to be heard.
3: I don't always agree with everything he says to be sure, but fair play. He makes me think. I must say. Sometimes he really makes me laugh. Having a place that's about our issues is so important and refreshing. Join me, Jonathan Mosen, and our audience who contributes from all around the world for Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. You can listen live on Mushroom FM, YouTube, Facebook, or Clubhouse, or follow Mosen at Large in your podcast
2: app of choice. Please note, no real humans were bothered during the recording of this promo. Mosen at Large podcast. Joining us now is Matthew Horspool. So, Matthew, thank you so much for taking some time out to join us today. I am Ryan Flurry, and joining us in the room are Steve Barkley. Hello there. And Rob Minot. Uh, Good morning.
3: Good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to be here or uh, good afternoon from the UK. Uh, Well, listen, Hey, let's get
0: started and to, and maybe just give us a little bit of an overview of what you guys are doing over there at the Braille list.
3: Yeah. So, um, what we're doing is, is kind of, uh, it's evolved a lot and it's evolved a lot because of the pandemic. We started out in 2014 as this tiny little group over in Bristol. Um, Bristol, sort of southwest of England. They they talk like farmers down in Bristol. I'm not even going to try and do the accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, this little startup called Bristol Braille Technology was um, creating this multi-line braille e-reader called the Canute, which is now on the market. But um, they needed some user testers, so a, a bunch of us came down to Bristol and we looked at it and we gave them some feedback. And uh, out of that. Uh, emerged some conversations about Braille, and we kind of went, well, we're enjoying these conversations, so why don't we meet up again? Not to talk about the Canute, but just to talk about Braille. And uh, so this happened and there were a few meetings in Bristol, and then we had a few meetings in another place called Reading, which is kind of near London. And, uh, you know, all this happened, and, and we were this informal group that talked about Braille, and we we were just a bunch of Braille nerds, really. And um, it kind of carried on like that. And there were patches where we had a lot of meetings and then we didn't have so many meetings. And then coronavirus happened and we had no meetings. And we thought, okay, well, the community kind of needs to you know, it needs some support at the moment. We just need to stay together as a community. So we did some community calls and that got us really, really good at doing Zoom meetings. Uh, we, we learned how to moderate Zoom meetings effectively and, and people, other organizations in the UK are coming to us now and saying, you know, how do you run your Zoom meetings so well? And can you give us some training on it? And um, so we, we took that knowledge kind of around about the sort of May time of last year and started our first Braille for beginners session, kind of like as a pilot, You know, can we teach Braille remotely um, over Zoom? And we worked out that we could, and we also worked out that uh, there were a few other things that we could do at a more advanced level that would be even easier to do, like teaching people how to use Braille on Windows and teaching people how to use Braille on iOS and how to use the slate and stylus. And so we ran a load of, uh, of these sessions at the start of this year with some grant funding and uh, that grant funding has sort of come to an end now but we've got a little bit more money and we're applying we're applying for some more money and uh, yeah that's basically what we're doing at the moment is just a whole bunch of training sessions on uh, how to use various aspects of braille in your day-to-day life
0: it must be a really interesting experience trying to teach braille over zoom
3: Yeah, so it depends what sort of teaching Braille you mean. I mean, to teach the basics of Braille over Zoom is really interesting, and I haven't really been involved in that aspect of it. Um, I take my hat off to a woman called Jenny Langley, who teaches Braille down at the West of England School for pioneering this idea, and latterly um, a woman called Melanie Pritchard, who lives not too far away from me, but uh, she used to teach Braille to adults and uh, took it on. Uh, did another uh, course this year and what we're finding is we're quite good at teaching people to read over zoom they as long as they have the reading material we can listen to them read we can you know we can point out their mistakes uh, and we can do this and we can teach them the alphabet and we can you know all of that sort of thing works well once you've you know, adjusted to the dynamics of teaching on zoom. Once we start looking at teaching them to write, that's a bit harder because we can't check their work. And we probably could have done a postal system. You know, we could have said, you know, post your work to this address and we'll mark it and post it back. But we didn't do that. And that would involve a lot more work, I think, than teaching people how to read. So it's no replacement for face to face. But in the middle of a pandemic, it, it, it suited our needs very well. And in terms of things like, you know, teaching people how to use braille displays and teaching people strategies for how to use braille, we did a session on labeling and things like that. I mean, that's kind of just like presenting any other webinar, really. You know, it's, it's you know, you can teach someone how to use JAWS or you can teach someone how to use a braille display and, you know, it's just a webinar.
2: And so the Brailless Foundation sounds like it's still kind of in it, in its infancy. But Matthew, I've seen your name around online for years. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your background?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> when you Google my name, you get all sorts of things, don't you? And some of them are more embarrassing than others. But yeah, I'm uh, in my late 20s. I'll be 30 next year. I, When I was a child, I um, had access to a broadband internet connection, kind of when broadband, you know, you were lucky if you got one megabit per second, and I had one megabit per second. And um, people didn't really understand the internet back then, right? Um, They didn't understand what harm the internet could do. They didn't understand what good the internet could do. It was just this thing. Um, so I got away with loads and I think if my parents knew half of what I got up to on the internet as a child, you know, they'd be horrified. But <laughs> yeah, I, um, I listened to lots of main menu uh, back when Jonathan Mosen did main menu and then when Dave Williams did main menu and indeed Dave's now our chairman at the Braylist. So it's amazing how small the community is. Mm-hmm. Um, listened to lots of main menu, uh, learnt a lot from those, um, joined a load of mailing lists Uh, mostly on, you know, Jaws at the time. Jaws and the Braille note and uh, a few lists for, like, Braille embosses and that sort of thing and Skype. And I used to ask questions and then I used to answer them and... Right. Um, yeah, so I was about and beta tested JAWS and did internet radio. And uh, and then I went to college. I went to a college for the blind down in Hereford and I discovered beer. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> being on, uh, it, you know, when you have the choice on a Saturday afternoon between drinking beer and being on email lists, you take the beer, right? So I kind of had a, a, an absence from the assistive tech space for a long time and I'm only now really starting to sort of find my way back in and um, sort of rediscover some of those mailing lists. And it's amazing that, you know, the people who you find on mailing lists who you were talking to 10 years ago who still mm-hmm. remember you. And it's a it, it, it's a hard community to be a part of sometimes, but it's an amazing community at the same time. And I'm really glad I found my way back to it.
0: So are you guys really mainly involved in, in things like training and and support? Or are you in the advocacy space in terms of Braille literacy as well?
3: We're not... Uh, in the advocacy space as such you know we're, we're not going to be the people who take people to court because they haven't got braille signage um that would probably be rnib over in the uk or possibly we have a national federation of the blind of the uk and we have things like thomas Potlingson trust they would be the real advocacy people we would teach people strategies on how to advocate so we would say you know you need to ask people if they've got braille signs you need to ask people if they've got braille menus, and we believe very passionately that there needs to be more braille. Our mission is more braille. Um, so, although at the moment we're mostly doing training and support, we would, uh, you know, we would do other things connected to braille if we thought it was uh, useful. So we would test products for people, and we would help out with academic research, and um, you know, get involved in not so much standard setting but testing standards. So our Braille authority, for example, if they were rolling out a new standard, they might come to us at the Braille lists and say, Can you assemble a user group to look at some samples that are created according to this standard and tell us what you think? So we do have input in that sense, but not strict advocacy, no.
0: And what's the you know, I know that over here, you know, for, for years we've been kind of fighting this this battle for Braille literacy. Um even even among the, the blindness community, because, you know, there there was this, this idea for a while that things like audiobooks and screen readers could, could sort of replace the need to learn Braille. Um, is, has that been your experience over there as well?
3: Yeah, we've definitely seen this, um, especially in education. And actually, especially in areas where sighted people are telling uh, blind people what to do. So um, one of the things that amazes me is that when we set up Braille for Beginners, we got 100 and something, 120, 140, something like that, registrants for Braille for Beginners. And this is off the back of local blindness societies telling us, oh, we don't run Braille courses anymore because there just isn't the interest. Well, Hmm. I'm sorry, there must be interest because we've managed to find... 120 people who don't know Braille who are online and who feel comfortable learning Braille remotely. You know, if there's that many people online and comfortable learning remotely, there must be plenty who are offline and not comfortable learning yeah. remotely who are interested. Um, so I think there's a disconnect there. And and yeah, we, we definitely see it. And I think... We tend to take a fairly measured response. I certainly do. I'm not out to say that Braille is gonna solve everybody's problems. I'm not out to say that Braille is inherently better than speech, and I'm not out to say that speech is inherently better than Braille. Um, I, I don't see why it needs to be a one or the other, you know, an either or choice. I feel like some people get on better with speech and why shouldn't they? Let them, you know, let them get on better with speech. Others get on better with Braille, and we shouldn't be saying to the people who get on better with Braille, oh, well, you can't have it because you've you've got to do it with speech. There are times, you know, I sing in a cathedral choir, and I would not be able to use speech to do that job. I can't imagine standing in a choir with a headphone in <laughs> oh, listening geez. to speech, yeah. speak yeah. the words, right? I need to read the words. That's the only way I can do it, and I need to read the music. Now... Likewise, if I'm, well, or or by contrast, if I'm reading my emails, you know what, it's quite nice just to sit back and listen to them Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, drink tea at the same time, you know? So I think, yeah, we, we would always advocate for Braille. We would always say, you know, Braille speech has not replaced Braille, but we wouldn't say, you know, don't use speech because Braille's so much better. Right. Yeah,
0: and I, you know, and the, the place where you know you really feel the impact of that is you know the education space and, and and the workspace. You know, honestly, there are times when you know written materials just need to be produced in a, in a format that that someone can read, and speech isn't always an option. Um, you know, certainly it's great when it is, but there there are tons of different examples where speech just is not going to. To cut it, um, and the yeah, problem is, absolutely. you know, if you've never learned Braille, coming up through and through the education system, you, then you're as an adult, you're you're essentially illiterate.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that, and and I think it's not just about reading and writing. You know, I mean, so it is about reading and writing, and I find that my spelling is better for having read Braille. And I don't know about you, but when I'm typing and I can't spell a word, I'll go, oh well, what does that feel like in Braille? And then I'll translate You know, if I can't remember how to spell a word, I'll think, well, what contractions does that word have? And that'll, that'll give me a clue. But it's not even about reading and writing. It's about spatial awareness. Mm. I read tables, even basic tables like tables of contents. I read tables in Braille from a very early age. I was reading books in Braille that had running headers and page numbers and headings you know centered headings and left justified headings and all of this sort of stuff and i learned very early on through all of that spatial stuff the importance of having headings and the importance of having page numbers and i had a book once that didn't have page numbers and it was the most horrendous thing to navigate and Mm. so i feel like i've got an appreciation an actual conscious appreciation of why it's so important to put page numbers in my Word document, because I've got a conscious appreciation of how difficult it is. And I feel like people who haven't read, whether it's print or Braille, or, and you know, maybe if you read print earlier on and then you lost your sight, it's a slightly different story. But if you've not read at all, if all that you've had access to is audio, how do you build up a conscious appreciation? You, you know that you need to put page numbers in because the sighted people depend on page numbers, but you don't really understand why
0: so in your experience and and your experience in the community how hard of a sell is braille to people and where where is the pushback happening is it is it among you know the the younger blind community or is it you know in the able-bodied community where where sort of is that pushback happening
3: I think actually we're starting to see some change uh, in that sense I think it feels to me, and maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe I'm hanging around with a community that likes Braille and that's why I'm feeling it. But <laughs> I feel like Braille's becoming fashionable again in a way that it wasn't fashionable even you know, 10 years ago. Um, so I'm not getting as much pushback as I used to get. When I talk about Braille, I'm finding a lot of uh, younger blind people, you know, blind people of my age and slightly younger and slightly older who are saying, actually, yeah, I really like Braille and I really, you know, use Braille. I do get some pushback. I get pushback from people who uh, who are my age, who have, you know, fought really, really hard to get jobs who are not amazing braille readers and some of us aren't some of us are not amazing braille readers some of us are not amazing speech readers it goes back to what i said before but you know i there are people who are my age who are not amazing braille readers who fought really hard to get jobs who've found a job and and actually very high paying you know on on good five or even six figure salaries um who would push back and say, well, I managed to get a job without Braille. So braille's not that important. That's a narrative that I've heard um, quite often. And I would add to that sentence, not important to them. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think that would actually be a fair assessment. You know, clearly they don't need it, but that doesn't mean that everybody else doesn't. And then, yeah, I get pushback from um, actually from the older generation of people who were sighted and then lost their sight and in particular the people who support them so you know if i say to somebody you need to learn braille and they're you know in their 20s i mean they might sort of go well i don't know why but if they're not you know that they they might learn it um and especially if they're not doing very well, you know, if if they're struggling with their studies and they're struggling to find employment, they they might learn it. Or if somebody lost their sight in like their their 20s, 30s, um, I'd have an easier time persuading them to learn Braille than somebody who lost their sight in maybe their 70s or their 80s. Um, And I think that's partly because the people in the 70s and their 80s uh, feel less incentivized to learn. But I also think it's because the narrative from sighted uh, habilitation professionals and people like that, you know, O&M people, Um, the attitude tends to be, well, you don't need to learn it. You're too old to learn it. You won't have the sensitivity. And they've already been put off by them. And so by the time I come along, you know, of course they're not gonna wanna learn it.
1: What's the state of uh, Braille education in in the UK right now? Because over here, one of the big barriers to people learning Braille is is the fact that there's just so few teachers.
3: Yeah, that's true. Um, If you're a child and you're really, really blind, Um, then, then you'll be fine you will get braille tuition you may not get braille tuition of particularly high quality I mean that kind of depends on where you live and whether you're lucky enough to have a braille teacher nearby but you'll get some sort of braille teaching because there literally is no alternative you know unless they want to teach you to use speech only and I haven't seen any cases of people using speech only um the big problem we have in children's education is people who are on the borderline so people who for example when they're a child they are able to read children's books in print and so they're never taught Braille because people say, well, you, you know, you've got your vision. You must hold on to the vision that you've got. You must use, you know, oh, we've got to strain to use every bit, every bit of the vision that you've got. We don't want to turn your eyes off. In fact, I had one parent that I used to work in a school. and I had one parent who said this when I said that the child needed to learn Braille. The mum said, yeah, but that feels like I'm turning his eyes off. And it no. wasn't until I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. You are turning his eyes off. But by turning his eyes off, you're allowing him to turn his eyes on when he needs to cross the road. And the mum kind of looked and went, you know, I never thought about it like that. I'm going to make sure he learns Braille. But people don't. And, you know, we used to say, we'll teach Braille to anybody who can't read size 24 print. And then gradually it's gone up. And now it's, you know, we, we won't teach Braille until they can't read size 36. And I think in some cases, we won't teach Braille until they can't read size 48. And, you know, I think that's not, fair you know we should be teaching them braille if they can't read 24 yeah. or possibly a bit less than that you know um and if you're an adult i mean yes i mean good luck trying to learn braille if you're an adult you've, you've really got to fight hard for any sort of braille tuition if you're an adult
1: yeah i hear your point about uh, uh the the pushback you sometimes get from parents one one of the other hats that i wear i i work on a, a clinic uh, a low vision clinic for kids and um we regularly see kids who have eye conditions where their their vision is ultimately going to uh, fail them, and uh, it, it's surprising how many parents of those kids do not want their kid to learn braille because they they see it somehow as a as a defeat, uh, which is sad and. Yeah,
3: (laughs) I guess you get the same arguments about the white cane as well. Oh, I don't, you know, he's not blind. He's only partially sighted. He doesn't need a cane. And you think, yeah, but I mean, if he's so partially sighted that he's going to fall down the steps because he didn't see them, he's blind enough to need a cane. But I guess it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Braille's seen as like this, the the, the ultimate kind of demonstration of the fact that you've failed at life because you're blind. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a shame. I I think, I think... we still have this problem If we see blindness as a failure yes. as a society, yep. we see, Oh yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's a real shame that, Oh, he's blind. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. I think, you know, that's, that's not really, I, I can understand why we're here, but it's not fair really, is it? No.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, and that's a, you know, that's a super high level conversation, but it, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, the, really the, the, the problem at the, at the heart of that is just the way that society sees disability. So how much of a problem do you see cost being in terms of Braille? You know, even producing Braille materials is, is expensive, you know, for, for educational systems to produce Braille for, for all their students, very expensive. And even on the, in, in the consumer level, you know, things like uh, electronic Braille devices are still really expensive for a lot of people is does that factor in to some of the problem that that we're having in, in really getting braille
3: out there i mean it does but i think we're not always comparing apples to apples and sometimes we can see technology as a bit of a false economy um so yeah braille technology is expensive there's no getting away from that and i think um Braille technology hasn't really done us any favors in a lot of ways because you have products like the Braille Note Touch and the Braille Sense 6, and I'm not out to slam these products at all. If, you know, I, I think they're great products and they work well in the areas where they work well. However, they don't work in the areas where they don't work well. And what I find frustrating is that we say, oh yeah, you can get this really expensive Braille technology but it'll do everything that the laptop will do. And then they get it, and they find that it doesn't, and that gives a very negative impression of Braille because not only is it expensive, but it's not fit for purpose. Um, I think products like the Orbit Reader are changing the landscape because, number one, they're cheaper, mm-hmm. and number two, they've got a very predefined purpose. This machine can only read and write basic Braille. And, and people understand that, and people buy it, and there's, there's no false expectation of what it can and can't do, and I think that's helping. Um, so I think we'll we'll get there in terms of the expense of the technology, and as more and more people need the technology, we might get economies of scales and, and bring the cost down or at least not continue to bring the cost up. I mean, for all that Braille is expensive, a Braille display ten years ago cost about the same as a Braille display costs now. So I don't see as the price has really gone up in line with inflation. Um, So it is gradually getting cheaper, or at least staying the same. And in terms of the cost of the production of Braille, I mean, it's always going to be expensive to a certain extent because you've got to pay transcribers to do jobs. Um, And uh, I mean, there's automation, but automation isn't going to get you all of the way. But the thing is, I think to a certain extent, we're always going to need transcribers because the sighted world, the mainstream world is not good at producing accessible documents. So even if I didn't need a document in Braille, um, even if I just needed the document as a Microsoft Word document so that I could read it on on my Braille display or I could read it with speech, if that document originated as a PDF file that's badly formatted or it originated as a, a printed page that's got to be scanned in and we don't have the electronic file anymore or anything like that, we're still gonna need a transcriber to transcribe it into a Word document. So although it will be more expensive to put it into Braille because you've gotta pay for the Braille paper and and what have you, I don't think it's as as expensive as perhaps we make it out to be or the opponents of Braille would make it out to be.
0: So going back to some of these devices that uh, are cheaper, um because you know i remember talking about this years ago when when they were sort of first poised to to enter the market and being really excited about it because um from what i understand they they use a slightly different technology than standard um, electronic braille devices um that that allow them to to be produced cheaper which then allows them to be sold cheaper of course how are we in that space um, I mean, because I know that there are a few devices that are out there that that use similar technology that that's different. How is how are things like the Orbit Reader doing, um, say, in the UK?
3: Yeah, it's a fair question. And look, you get what you pay for with these things. Um, I'm not saying that an Orbit Reader 20 is comparable to a Focus 14 or a Brilliant BI 20 or a Vario Ultra 20 or any of the other displays on the market. It is different technology. It refreshes more loudly. It refreshes more slowly. Um, you imagine a blinking cursor on an Orbit Reader 20 going off all day. It sounds like you've got a ticking clock in the room. It's, it's really frustrating. Um, but they're cheap, and the, the Braille quality is good. And for people who are just starting out with Braille, maybe they don't care so much. Right. And that because they're cheap, we're able to, I mean, companies like RNIB over in the UK um, they bought bucket loads of these things, you know, thousands and thousands of them, and are just giving them away. Um, they have a very um, aggressive grants program. If you're a blind child, um, the Orbit Reader costs about £600 over here. If you're a blind child, you can get one for £40. Wow. Thanks to a grant program um, headed up jointly by RNIB and a charity called Victor. Um, you know. Uh, when the RNIB library closed this time last year uh, because of COVID they sent out lots of free Orbit readers with SD cards of books Um, and and indeed that SD card has become very popular and and people are ordering the SD card because it's got you know 2000 uh, BRF formatted books on it so over here the Orbit's doing remarkably well because it's cheap enough that RNIB can buy lots of them in and really support it well and push it out to people and I think RNIB, um, in that sense, kind of saw electronic braille as kind of you know, okay, we could spend a few hundred thousand on electronic braille devices, but they rent their physical library space. Mm-hmm. So if by spending hundreds of thousands on electronic braille devices they could reduce the amount of hard copy braille and hence reduce the amount of space that they need to rent, then I think they probably saw it as a long-term investment.
1: Hey, let's talk about the Braillecast. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs>
2: what is Braillecast, Matthew?
1: <laughs> All right, yeah. So,
3: um, so Braillecast and the Brailleists um, were not one and the same at first, and they are now. So, um, Braillecast was set up in 2017 as a bit of a freelance project. Um, the the chairman of the Brailleists at the time, uh, Dave Williams, who in fact is still the chairman of the Brailleists, but at the time he was a, a freelancer. And um, he set it up to, to strengthen his brand, I think. And, uh, and I was brought on to kind of do some editing work and some production work, and we set it up as, as BrailleCast to promote Braille. And the idea was we produce about 20 minutes of content per month, and we'd push it out to teachers of the blind uh, and other stakeholders like that to try and show that Braille is still relevant. And we'd try and publish, you know, interesting interviews and things like this. And um, it worked to a point. We we didn't get you know enormous listener figures, but it 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 was good. It, it did what it did. Um, but then we both kind of got busy, and, and nothing really happened with it for a while. And then we sort of brought it under the Brailleists umbrella, and um, we started to publish you know some more lengthy interviews. We published one with say Brian McDonald about uh, how National Braille Press was coping during the pandemic. We published one with the UEB online people about uh, the UEB online course and how that worked and and all that sort of thing. Um, Judy Dixon gave us an interview on braille slates and things. And in the early days of the pandemic, we actually recorded those interviews in front of a live Brailleist's audience wow. um, as part of our community calls. Uh, you know, it, it you know people needed a sense of community, so we had a community call for a bit, and then we brought Judy in, interviewed her. The audience got to ask questions, and it was kind of a nice way to spend a Friday evening when we were all kind of in lockdown and didn't know what to do with ourselves. And um, that kind of changed the dynamic of Braillecast, and we ended up with a very loyal audience of braille users. And so the content on BrailleCast now is very much geared towards braille users and interviews that they would find interesting. So we uh, have an interview that, as we record this, hasn't been published, but will be published soon with uh, Andrew Flatris at HumanWare about the new 1.1.1 update for the Brailliant displays uh, that's just come out. and. Uh, we've, we've got some really interesting interviews. We, we published one over Christmas with a chap called Stephen, who I went to college with, and he's a sighted person who was denied the opportunity to learn Braille. And we talked about, you know, what was it like to go through school as somebody who didn't know Braille and, you know, do you wish you'd learned Braille and all that, all this sort of thing. Um, and the interviews have got a bit longer. And we also use it as an opportunity, a, a, as a platform to publish archives of our training. So quite a lot of BrailleCast at the moment actually is archives of the masterclasses that we've run on using Braille on Windows, using Braille on iOS, SEB versus UEB, Braille in the workplace, how to choose a Braille display, Braille music, you know, lots of webinar recordings that uh, we brand as BrailleCast extra so that people know that they can skip over it if they attended the live webinar, but it's all in the same feed.
2: Okay, I have to ask. So I I learned grade one braille. I learned a little bit of grade two. Never jumped into UEB, but I think I just heard you say SEB. What is SEB?
3: Okay, so SEB never actually existed. Uh, (laughs) We'll call it SEB now. So um, (laughs) before UEB, so UEB is unified English braille, and we have UEB grade one and UEB grade two. Right. Before UEB, we had all the different codes that all the different countries used, and they predominantly fell into um, British Braille, and the the full title of British Braille was British Braille, a restatement of standard English Braille, which is where we get SEB from, but the code was British Braille, and the other code that people might be familiar with, uh, particularly in Canada, was English Braille American Edition, EBAE, And British Braille was produced by Bork, the Braille Authority of the UK, and EBAE was the Braille Authority of North America. And uh, these codes kind of came, you know, came together to form UEB, and SEB has become the word that we use to describe the various cluster of codes that existed before UEB.
2: So, have we finally settled on a Braille code? (laughs)
3: well (laughs) there's so many people (laughs) i know oh don't even get me started there are so many people who don't like ueb i think the thing is the great thing about ueb and i I, i'm a great advocate of ueb that the great thing about ueb is that it's unambiguous and it can represent everything that you need it to represent if you need to represent something in ueb you can do it and um it's really interesting the sorts of things that you can do in ueb that you sort of didn't think about so if you look at braille screen input on an iphone um you know uh i had a girlfriend i, I we I, I don't have a girlfriend anymore um although <laughs> you know how temporary that will be will uh will you know leave to be seen but you know when we would text each other you know i wanted to put smiley faces now okay I could do that in the old braille code, but remember that the open bracket and the closed bracket were both a lower G, so how do I make absolutely sure, if I'm doing a colon followed by a bracket, how do I make absolutely sure that that the translator will put a right bracket instead of a left bracket. I don't want to send a sad face by accident. <laughs> Most of the time it will get it right. But you know what I mean? You know, in UEB, you do not have that ambiguity. It's it's very simple bracket. An open bracket is a dot five and a GH sign and a close bracket is a dot five and an AR sign. Um, so UEB can represent everything and it can represent it unambiguously. And that's an enormous selling point. There is no denying that the Nemeth code for mathematics is significantly smaller than its UEB counterpart. Um, even the old British maths code, I mean, it wasn't as small as Nemeth, but it was smaller than UEB. If I was studying degree level maths at university, I think I would probably choose to use one of the older maths code for the fact that it was compact and I think that's fine. I think, you know, I think it's good that we have the ability to represent maths in UEB. And I think it's equally good that you know, if we need to to represent it in a small way, we can still do that. You know, we still switch to an alternative code for music. So why shouldn't we switch to an alternative code for maths? But what you don't want to do is be in a situation where the only maths code that's available is Nemeth, and you're using uh ios braille displays and you've got a couple of math signs that you then need to switch into nemeth code because ueb can't accommodate them so it's good that ueb has the options there
2: and that's why people refuse to learn braille because it's too complicated
1: (laughs) it's not that complicated
3: but the thing is it's not
2: though and
1: yeah i mean it's it's
3: well and even then it's a false economy right you say oh well i'm not going to learn braille because it's too complicated but we don't say that, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to learn to use speech because it's too complicated. Right. Right. But, 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 but we can have a conversation about, well, I prefer eloquence and I prefer <laughs> nuanced vocalizer. And nobody, nobody sits there and listens to us have that conversation and says, oh, I'm not going to use speech because it's too complicated. Right. And, and actually using speech is pretty complicated. The only reason why people don't think speech is, is complicated is because they're not trained. Um you know i i get really cross with people who say i use nvda because nvda can do everything that jaws can do
2: it can't it (laughs) cannot do everything that
3: jaws can do i'm not saying here that nvda is a bad product nvda can can do things that jaws can't do jaws Mm -hmm. can do things that nvda can't do i'm not out to say which one's best you know i use both of them i like both of them but you can't, you know, people oversimplify speech and I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair. If, if you invested as much time in, you know, trying to work out reasons why you shouldn't use speech as you invest in finding reasons why you shouldn't learn Braille, believe you me, you'll find them.
2: Right.
0: I like it. I, l- I like this passion about Braille. <laughs> I like where this conversation has gone. This is
3: great. You gave me a perfect opportunity to talk about speech versus Braille, which was the one thing I did want to come back on, but I've, um, I've done it. So and really, he's angry now. That, yeah, I know. You're me. all fired up just for the <laughs>
0: in time for the end of the day. Yeah. This is great. You'll drink some more beer.
3: <laughs> no. Well, it just annoys me that, you know, people turn around and say, oh, well, it's going to take two years to learn how to do Braille, but we can teach someone how to use a computer in three months. And you go, well, actually, you know what? You can't teach someone to use a computer in three months. You can teach somebody how to write a document and save it in three months. But as soon as a Windows update comes and changes the process for saving a file, then you've got to send them back to training to be retrained. If you're gonna teach somebody to independently use a computer and deal with all of the stuff that goes wrong with computers, it's gonna take the same two years that it took to teach Mm them Braille
0: oh if anybody knows that pain it's going to be ryan and steve buy a mac
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but even that doesn't work like i <laughs> i'm, a, I'm a, a staunch voiceover user on ios And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll use a Mac because, you know, voiceover's great (laughs) and all this and and yada, yada, yada. And, oh, I wanted to throw that Mac out the window. It was awful. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been, like, you know, if I'd have actually bothered to actually learn how to use it rather than just, you know, done it for half an hour and gone, no, you know what, it's not the iPhone. I don't like it. But, you know, even the Mac has its problems. For sure.
2: Conversation for another day. Indeed.
0: Well listen, anybody who is interested in any of the workshops or master classes that you guys
3: hold, uh, where can people find you guys? You can find us on the web at braylists.org. That's B-R-A-I-L-L-I-S-T-S.org. Um you can follow us on Twitter at Braylists. We are also on Facebook. If you search for the Braylists Foundation, you'll find us there. And if you want the podcast uh, for now, we're, we have a separate website for the podcast. So the podcast is at BrailleCast, uh, And if you have iTunes or Overcast or Pocket Casts, Downcast, Castro, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, any of these Google podcasts, if you just search for BrailleCast, you'll find it. And um, if the A Lady doesn't find it because we, we do have this. You say play Braillecast and it says, I can't find Briancast. Oh, you know <laughs> any number of things happen when you try this. Um we did actually add some keywords, yeah. so the full title of the feed, uh, to make it easier for smart speakers to find us is connect Braillecast connecting the dots for Brailleists everywhere. So if you ask it for something like Braillecast connecting the dots, hopefully there's enough keywords in there that it should be able to find it.
0: Oh damn! You know we need to do that as too.
2: We have the same. Problem. Oh, I know. And a, anytime a, a, I try to get the smart speaker to say, it. you know, play at banter, I can't play at banter. Yeah, I can't play ad banter. I can't play. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna do the same thing.
0: They need, we need a smarter smart speaker.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we really do. Well, it's frustrating because you can't even put a phonetic thing in, can you? Like I, I thought you know, or oh, when I list it on Amazon Music, it might come up with you know. How, what alternative things could we look out for, at which point I would have put Braille Space Cast. It might have come up then. Right. Brian, you know, um, you know I, and then you say, oh, play podcasts by the Braillists Foundation. And you get, I can't find podcasts by the Playlist Foundation. <laughs> and you think, no, I don't want the Playlist. <laughs> you know, but there doesn't seem to be any way of logging that sort of thing and saying to Amazon, look, come on, can you sort this out, please?
2: Well, that's one main reason I don't use my Echo devices for home security. They're just not reliable yet. <laughs> no, no,
3: they're really not. But hey-ho, you yeah, know, we'll get there one of these days. And in the meantime, yep. I think we've got just about enough keywords to make it work.
2: Well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking some time out today to join us. I know your day is coming to an end. Ours is just beginning. So it's
3: just beginning, yeah. Well, thanks right. very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about lists and to talk about Braille and uh, to find... Light minded people so yeah but, keep in touch
0: whew, well there you go boys another braille episode under our belts probably like the 56th one
1: indeed it wasn't even all that bumpy <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: there's lots of interesting stuff going on on their website i was looking at it earlier today and they've got events coming up um steve they even even have an event with Kay holbrook Oh, no, uh, doing a presentation way. on their website, I think in June on Braille. So there's webinars, events, stuff happening over there all the time. So definitely check out their website because they're pretty active.
0: Well, and that's the nice thing about uh, the online world that we live in thanks to COVID uh, is that uh, a lot of these events are now open to people all over the world. So as long as you can manage the time difference, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pretty cool events that you can access.
1: Thanks, COVID. <laughs> Thank you, COVID. So nice Thank you. you for bringing the world to our computers and forcing well, them to stay there.
2: In some ways, it's brought us together. You know, how many times have we said during our pub nights and stuff that, you know, we're talking with people that we probably would never have met before over this past year, year and a half. So it's been, it, it's had its bonuses. Mm-hmm. Yep, it
0: is this true. true. I mean, there was, that, there was that month and a half there that Pornhub was free. What? Yeah, that's right. You missed that. Why didn't you tell me? Sorry, dude. That was, yeah, it was last March. Oh, man. Sorry. Uh, But yeah, no, listen, you got to take the silver linings where you can get them. But uh, no, that was, you know what? It's really also really interesting to hear about the state of Braille in different countries. And because I, I do really feel like your mileage varies depending on where you are in the world.
1: Hello? Sorry, I was looking for good news articles Yeah, sure, you, just, you
0: guys are trying to pull that whole hello thing on me, and right my mic died <laughs> I thought that's what was going on like, See, you're making me paranoid now Like, I think you guys have meetings without me Where it's are just like, okay yeah, <laughs> And then just pretend his mic died And you can't hear him
2: <laughs> oh, That was a good idea Yeah <laughs> only, only had
0: thought of that Well, uh, hey, Ryan.
2: Rob. Where can people find us? They can find us at atbanter.com. They can also drop
0: us an email if they so desire uh, at cowbell
1: at atbanter.com. Substitute cowbell. Yeah. Suck it, Ryan.
2: All right. Wait, was that? pretty lame sounding cowbell. I didn't hear anything. Yeah, it was very, very, very faint. Was it? Oh, yeah, Zoom's you, probably canceling it out.
0: Zoom must have canceled out. What were you, was, were you <sighs> using one of the little it. cowbells? <laughs> yeah, it's <that's
1: laughs> one, one there.
0: Okay, okay, try to get... Okay, put it right up to the microphone. And come.
2: There you go. Oh, my God. Mmm... <laughs> that's right as we speak
0: there's like a bunch of cows running towards us wow that was was quite the cowbell well we look forward i'm sure our audience now is really looking forward to the return of the actual cowbell next week (laughs) oh all right we better better end this i think i think think all those ant trap fumes are getting going right to ryan's head that's right Hey, hey speaking of you um how's the exercising
2: going now i haven't done it for two weeks because we've had ants down here
0: okay well just checking
2: because i thought yeah
0: that's how it starts next week will be
2: the the big test yeah if i've got no ants down here for the rest of the week then yes i will be starting again monday all right okay
0: we'll see. what about yep. what about you steve what's the how's the running schedule going
1: uh pretty good pretty good i was out uh, on sunday uh Got uh, about six and a half kilometer run in. And uh, the Sunday before that, I did 10. Wow. Wow. So that's coming along pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, tomorrow I might, uh, if I can get my ass out of bed early enough, I might go down to the lake and uh, see if I can run around Burnaby Lake. Wow. Nice.
2: Yeah, that is nice. Well, well done. Well done. Is there somebody, somebody home to come pick you up?
1: Uh <laughs> no, but if I take my cell with me, I'm sure I can call someone. Call whoever. I be can fine. I can phone a friend.
0: <laughs> All right. That I think is going to about do it for us this week. Uh thanks everybody for listening in. Big thanks to Matthew from the Brailleists for talking with us. And uh we will see everybody
1: next week.